TUC Radio San Francisco Time of Useful Consciousness Confronting the Global Triple Crisis In September of 2007, the International Forum on Globalization held a teach-in in Washington, D.C. Topics were climate change, peak oil, global resource depletion, and extinction. Members of the International Forum on Globalization say that they have come together out of a shared concern that the world's corporate and political leadership is restructuring global politics and economics. This is a development that may prove as historically significant as any event since the Industrial Revolution. They say that the restructuring is happening at tremendous speed, with little public disclosure of the profound consequences affecting democracy, human welfare, local economies, and the natural world. You are about to hear Vandana Shiva from India, introduced by IFG founder and co-director Jerry Mander. Vandana Shiva had just witnessed the Arctic melt on Greenland and spoke eloquently about the destructive forces of globalization that are driving the ecological crisis. She also shed light on the effects of rapid economic growth in her home country, India. Here's IFG co-director Jerry Mander. My great pleasure to introduce Vandana Shiva. Of course, you all know her, I guess. She's a, a physicist, uh, a tremendous activist. She's the founder of the Research Foundation for Science, Technology, and Natural Resource Policy in New Delhi. She's a founding board member of the IFG. She's a, received the Right Livelihood Award in 1993 and 2001 was named among the top five most important people in Asia by Asia Week magazine. She's the author of more than 100 papers in leading journals and numerous books, including Monocultures of the Mind, Biodiversity, Biotechnology in the Third World, and Earth Democracy. But none of that says who she is. She's really a fantastic leader, a powerful thinker, and um, an inspiration to tens of thousands of people in India and everywhere else. She's managed to cross over in so many ways and, and, and with such brilliance, and, and I'm happy to introduce Vandana. Before I came here, I was very fortunate to join the group of scientists and uh, religious leaders who made this trip to the Arctic uh, to witness the melting of the ice caps. And an entire way of life is being destroyed. You've seen the polar bears losing their ecological space. But the highest mobility in that part of the world is the dog sledge. And they can't use it. They're locked into their villages because the ice is now too thin to travel on it, but it's still there and therefore not good enough for them to use boats. The same melting is making the Himalayan glaciers in my region, the Ganges Glacier, recede by 30 meters a year. 
In 20 years' time, the Himalayan glaciers will have reduced from 500,000 square kilometers to 100,000 square kilometers. And uh, given our rainfall patterns, in the hot summer season when we have a drought, it's only the melting of the glaciers that brings us water. So we are talking about one-fifth of humanity 20 to 30 years from now having no water in the grand rivers around which the grand civilizations of Asia have been built. And where did this start? You know, I mean, all this felt so timeless. And it started with humanity getting at the fossil fuel, which was never supposed to be touched. It wasted through pollution, and that's the carbon dioxide we are seeing, but it also wasted people. The wasted people of Europe could move to the Americas, to Australia, to Africa, but that model carries on. And globalization is now industrializing every activity of every human being's life across the planet. For me, globalization is really expanding the use of fossil fuel. And so while on the one hand, when we talk climate change, we are talking reducing emissions, the entire economic model is based on increasing emissions. It's based on increasing emissions by destroying small-scale peasant farming and introducing large-scale industrial agriculture. It's increasing emissions by making every one of us dependent on our everyday needs to come from China. Including little, you know, we, in India we're crazy. We have 300 million divinities, a Ganesh and a Hanuman and, a, you know, a Guru Nanak. And the other day they suddenly found Guru Nanak, who's the founding Sikh guru, chinky-eyed. You know, they just changed Confucius and put a turban on his head. And there was a huge riot in, in Punjab. Everything today is being made where it can be made most cheaply, which means where resources can be exploited the fastest and workers can be exploited the highest. And at one level, that's what's ref being reflected in, in China's double-digit growth and India's 9% growth. It's basically converting our resources into commodities, to be sold around the world. But that conversion requires the wastage of human beings on a scale we've never seen. In India right now, the relocation of industry, for example, industry like steel that's shutting down in Europe and America is relocating to India. Automobile co companies that are shutting down in the West are moving to India. They're talking about making 50 million cars in India annually. Only 4% of India will ever own them. The rest will either be exported or that 4% will have eight cars rather than two. Already my landlord has five in a family of three. Those cars need minerals. They need steel. They need iron ore mining. They need aluminium. They need bauxite mining. And every inch of the land in India is today serving a global fossil fuel economy that's on fast forward. It needs land. 
Land grab is the biggest resource crisis. Land you can't create. You can only exhaust. But peasants are saying we will not move. That's what they said in Nandigram. 25 were shot dead and they refused to move. In Dadri, where women were raped and attacked, they refused to move. In place after place, the tribals, the peasants in India are saying, this is our land, this is our mother, this is where we will be. And when the money for compensation becomes bigger and bigger, I love this action. The Nandigram peasants sent a letter to the chief minister to say, how much is your mother for sale? How much will you take for her? Because this land is our mother. And the globalization of agriculture has really become genocidal. It's hugely responsible for increasing greenhouse gases, whether it's from the nitrogen fertilizers or the fossil fuel in the mechanical uh, energy that's used or in the long-distance transport and food miles. But on the ground, it's killing people. Long before it will kill us through climate change, it's killing people, physically killing people. 150,000 farmers have been pushed to end their lives in India because of Monsanto seed monopolies, where Monsanto was collecting 2,400 rupees as royalty for a kilogram of BT cotton seed they were selling for 3,200 rupees. They're in, a, in the courts right now. We've, we've challenged them. we joined one of the state governments. They're saying we have a right to this monopoly. And we are saying this, our country has never given you this right. They assume they got it in, in the United States, and therefore they have it everywhere, whether the law allows it or not. Or Cargill, wanting to grab India's wheat market, having signed an agreement through the... Bush administration with, uh, right here in the city, decisions about agriculture are being made here in Washington, a two-year-old agriculture agreement. So Cargill eventually got India's wheat markets opened up, and the international wheat price is $400. Indian farmers are getting $200. And this double price is ultimately a subsidy that we are giving in addition to the subsidy your farm bill is providing to these corporations. Retail, India's a huge, huge land of, of bazaars, of hearts, of markets. Every street is a market. Hawkers come down in the morning, get us our vegetable to our doorstep. Of course, that's not very good for Walmart, so they're manipulating Zoning laws, shutting down hawkers, shutting down businesses in town, so that we will have a Walmart model. But that means 100 million people out of retail, and we don't know how much more carbon emissions while Walmart talks about going green. I think uh, John has done some calculation, but you need to add the additional emissions. We've done it for what it would mean for a few hundred stores but uh, Walmart here, we just had a wonderful action in Chandni Chowk, which is one of our oldest markets, because Walmart had announced that in 10 years' time, they'll generate 5,000 jobs. They're job creators. 100 million jobs in retail. Not jobs given by someone else, but self-employment, livelihoods. Uh, so 
here you have globalization adding to emissions, and it needs to be a continued part of our work. And you've got false solutions that were laid out by Jed. But the two false solutions that I think we need to pay particular attention to is the dominant solution in terms of carbon trading. Because at, at the philosophical level, at the worldview level, it's the second privatization of the atmospheric commons. The first privatization was putting the pollution into the atmosphere beyond the Earth's recycling capacity. Now with carbon trading, the rights to the Earth's carbon recycling capacity are gravitating exactly into the hands of the polluters. The environmental principle used to be the polluter must pay. Carbon trading is transforming that into the polluter gets paid. Stern, who did the Stern review, has clearly said it is an allocation of a full set of property rights to the atmosphere. And Price Waterhouse Coopers, who was very notorious in trying to privatize uh, with the World Bank help Delhi's water supply, and we defeated them two years ago in that project, has said that trade in carbon emissions is equated with the transfer of similar rights, such as copyrights, patents, licensing rights, commercial and industrial standards. One of the things we've always said in IFG is the enclosures of the commons is one of the deep crises of resource depletion. Once resources move out of common management and public care, they will get further degraded. And if you really look at some, the clean development mechanism, it's all about dirty industry. It's about HCFC plants uh, being accelerated, new plants being set up in China and India. The biggest recipients of CDM credits in China and India are, are plants that are depleting the ozone layer. Sponge iron plants coming up in the tribal belts of India, in Chhattisgarh, Jharkhand, and Orissa. And clean seems to have become such a confusing word. We would have thought we know what clean is. And suddenly everything dirty is clean, including nuclear. Nuclear not just as uh, nuclear power, but nuclear as strategic use of nuclear power. I don't know how many of you have followed that the United States signed an agreement with India. Now, it isn't really that the United States signed an agreement with India because you did not sign that agreement and I did not sign that agreement. <laughs> our Prime Minister came here and the same time they handed over our agriculture to Monsanto, Cargill and Walmart who sit on the board of the agriculture agreement. They also signed this nuclear agreement which has led to the Hyde Act, Section 103 of the Hyde Act calls for securing India's full and active participation in U.S. efforts to dissuade, isolate, and if necessary, sanction and contain Iran if it proceeds with its nuclear program. Iran has been mentioned 15 times in a bilateral agreement. So the nuclear agreement with India is definitely not about clean energy. It is about something bigger. And in India, right now, while I'm here, we are having the biggest democratic mobilization against this agreement. First, because Parliament did not clear it. Second, because we don't want to be a client state of the empire. We want our non-alignment defended. 
And thirdly, we don't want a hundred billion dollar market created for the defense industry in the United States. After all, you are going to have a big mobilization tomorrow against the war, and we don't want to be part of U.S.'s wars without end. We are, after all, the land of Gandhi, the land of nonviolence, the land of peace, the land of ahimsa. We have to begin with solutions where we are. While we defend our democratic rights, I work primarily on agriculture. The globalized, industrialized agriculture is a very big part of the pollution that we are dealing with, a very big part of the crisis we are facing. But ecological, biodiverse, local agriculture is part of the solution, both in reducing emissions, in increasing absorption of carbon, and most importantly, providing the adaptive capacity to deal with climate chaos. This year in Navdanya, the movement I started for seed saving, we started saving seeds that can deal with the drought, that can deal with the floods. We've been saving seeds that can deal with the cyclones and hurricanes and distributed those seeds after the tsunami. Um, those seeds are available. They merely have to be saved and distributed rapidly enough before Monsanto comes up with yet another false solution that without genetic engineering and seed patterns, we will not be able to respond to climate change. For those of you who are interested, there is this most recent report I've done, which is very simply soil, not oil. Our solutions for agriculture. And Southend also has the manifestos on the future of seed and food, and I'm saying this so I don't have to go through all the details that are available in this. I just want to end by saying that we have basically two options. We have the option of letting the remaining resources of the planet be fought over viciously through militarized power. Or we can move rapidly to the ability to rebuild our ecosystems, share the limited resources the planet can provide us, and create good lives while doing it. But to do that, we'll have to get out of many reductionisms. The first reductionism being the reductionism of energy. We've suddenly moved to thinking of energy only as something we can consume not as something we generate. And I think that generative concept of energy, we call it Shakti in India, is something we'll have to reclaim because the solution to pollution and wasted people is bringing people back deep into the equation of how we produce things, how we work the land, how we shape community, and how we exercise our democratic rights and rebuild our freedoms. And of course, we'll have to get out of the mindsets that treat the laws manufactured by the market as immutable and unchanging. And the three concepts that are constantly referred to as something that can't be touched is economic growth. You can't make any change that will touch the 9% growth in India, the 10% growth in China. You cannot interfere in the unregulated market, even though every step of trade liberalization is an interference in the market. 
every step of creating an opportunity for Cargill and Monsanto is an interference in the market. And the third false sacred is unbridled consumerism. We are because we buy. Problem of climate chaos to me and the problem of appropriating the resources of those who need those resources for ecological security and economic security is ultimately a question of ethics and justice. And that issue of ethics and justice can only be addressed if we recognize some very basic facts and reorient our practices of what we eat, what we do on our farms, our homes, our towns, our planet, we need to reimagine our eating and drinking, our moving and working in our local ecosystems and local cultures, enriching our lives while lowering our consumption without impoverishing others. And above all, we need to subject the laws that govern production and consumption to the laws of Gaia, the laws of the planet, the laws of a planet that can give forever in abundance for our needs if we do not allow the narrow-minded, mechanistic, reductionist, greed-based system of industrialism, capitalism, globalization to make us imagine that to be inhuman is the definition of being human. Thank you. Thank you. That was the Indian physicist and ecologist Vandana Shiva. She spoke at the Confronting the Global Triple Crisis Teach-In, organized by the International Forum on Globalization. In the second part of this program, you will hear from two other important speakers. Maud Barlow, chairperson of the Council of Canadians, will speak on the global water crisis and Daphne Weisham of the Institute for Policy Studies on the World Bank's role in driving climate change. Weisham explains in great detail how the system of carbon trading came about and how the World Bank is encouraging destructive development in fossil fuels. And she will talk about solutions. Maud Barlow has just completed a new book entitled Blue Covenant, The Global Water Crisis and the Coming Battle for the Right to Water. She's one of the best informed speakers and activists on the global water crisis. She explains how we are losing water through pollution, overpumping and displacement while the demands for water are rising. She names the corporations that are in the process of capturing water sources, the new blue gold. Here's a brief appeal by Maud Barlow that on the surface has nothing to do with her topic, the water crisis. She took the opportunity to alert the audience to a little-known new agreement between Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. We have to start talking about something called the Security and Prosperity Partnership for North America. A number of us in Canada have been doing a great deal of work on this. It's a new agreement that was signed in Waco, Texas in March 2005 by the heads of the three countries, prime ministers and presidents of Mexico, Canada, and the United States. 
which really was an agreement that, that in order post-11 for the business community, the big corporations to continue to be able to move across those borders, our three countries would adopt uh, George Bush's war on terror and have one approach to security. Security and prosperity would go hand in hand. It is an extraordinarily dangerous agreement. It's creating a, a terrible and dangerous and competitive new trading block uh, on the, in the world. Uh, it is, we've already merged our no-fly lists. We've already merged our security procedures. We are now setting up cross-government committees uh, to uh, merge and, and harmonize all the regulatory regimes, whether it's environment or security or defense, n no matter what, food, um, all of it across the country, again, based on the lowest common denominator. And when we met with the Embassy of the United States a couple of months ago, I asked them why this, this terrible security and prosperity partnership had not been brought to the legislatures of the three countries. He told me honestly, uh, the, the senior bureaucrat there told me honestly, it's because the three countries and their business community don't want another bruising NAFTA battle. They know they would lose. I am so determined that we are going to create, uh, as we did with NAFTA, a continent-wide resistance to something that so far has had only perhaps some of the, the, the least pleasant folks in the United States uh, having um, um, some concerns about it. So it's time it moved into the uh, progressive community. That was Maud Barlow. You will hear more from her when TUC Radio returns. Vandana Shiva and Maud Barlow were recorded at the Confronting the Global Triple Crisis Teach-In, organized by the International Forum on Globalization in Washington, D.C., in September of 2007. These and other panel talks of the three-day teach-in are posted on the IFG website at www.ifg.org. You are about to hear Maud Barlow from Canada talking about the global water crisis. She's introduced by IFG founder and co-director Jerry Mander. I'm so happy to introduce Maud Barlow. She's the national chairperson of the Council of Canadians. She's also one of the great inspiring leaders in our movement today and um, co-founder of the Blue Planet Project, which works to stop commodification of the world's water. In addition to being nominated for 1,000 Women for the Nobel Peace Prize 2005, she's the recipient of the 2005 Lannan Cultural Freedom Fellowship and the 2005 Right Livelihood Award. And at the IFG, we spend part of our time trying to persuade her to run for uh, Prime Minister of Canada, but so far she doesn't agree. Here's more about Thank you very much. It's a, an honor and a pleasure to be here. I want to talk about the global water crisis, the freshwater crisis. I have fear but also hope. The research has been done, the verdict is in, uh, and it's irrefutable, and that is that the world is facing an unprecedented freshwater crisis of such magnitude that close to 2 billion people now live in areas of the world that are severely water-stressed. What's happening is that we have three scenarios that collide towards disaster. Scenario one is that the world is running out of fresh water, which is something we were taught could never happen in the classrooms where we learned about the hydrologic cycle. 
But what nobody taught us, because nobody at that time understood, was that it was possible for us to massively pollute surface water so that we would then turn to overmining groundwater. And we are overmining groundwater so fast that scientists are now talking about coming anarchy, exponential anarchy. Uh, there are 25 million bore wells in India alone pumping 24-7. This water is just being taken up, uh, and there's no understanding of or knowledge of how much water there is and when it will run out. We're also massively displacing water, taking it from where it was put by nature, uh, either in watersheds or groundwater, and moving it through pipelines for mass irrigation, flood irrigation, uh, unsustainable agriculture, or moving it to huge megacities where we use it, and in many cases just dump it back into the ocean, often untreated. So we're actually losing water from the hydrologic cycle. And then there's the virtual trade in water, where a country or society uses its water to produce uh, kinds of exports that uh, are, are kinds of products that are then exported out of the country. About 20% of our daily domestic use is traded away from watersheds uh, every single day. So what we have, and I cannot stress this strongly enough, is that we are creating desert. The displacement and pollution and abuse of water is the ground level equivalent of the greenhouse gas emissions from above. We hear about water being a, uh, the water crisis being a, a result of global warming or climate change. I want us to start reversing that thinking and start to understand that what we're doing to water is actually helping to create the climate crisis. It's the ground, it's the, it's the ground level equivalent of what we're doing in terms of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Scenario two is that every day thousands more in our world are living without clean water. Half of the hospital beds on Earth are now occupied with people with preventable water-borne diseases. More children are killed every day by dirty water than HIV, AIDS, malaria, accidents, and war put together. The global water crisis has become the greatest symbol of inequity in our world and its greatest indictment of the system of market capitalism and globalization. In the next 40 years, humans will require an 80% increase in water use. No one, absolutely no one knows where this water is going to come from. Scenario three is just at the moment when we most need responsible governments, when we most need transparency, democracy, and, and uh, responsible public oversight of this crisis. We are finding, of course, the powerful corporate water cartel has emerged to take over every aspect of water for its own profit. Corporations now deliver drinking water and take away wastewater. Corporations put massive amounts of water in plastic and sell it back to us at exorbitant prices. Corporations are bu building new, uh, significant new technologies to recycle our dirty water and sell it back to us as well at, at exorbitant prices. The whole water reuse technology industry is the gr fastest growing part of the water industry, which in, in and of itself is becoming one of the most uh, important industries in the world or in terms of, of, uh, of uh, stock markets and how much money you can make and which commodities are, are, are uh, you know, most profitable. Water is going to be right up there at the top very, very soon. Uh, and we have uh, massive desalination programs uh, run by, in many cases, nuclear power being planned. We have a new technology to suck the water out of the atmosphere, new technology to seed clouds so that water in one community is, is, is removed uh, from the people, by the people there before it gets to move on. We even have uh, toilet to tap technology now. 
and I am deeply concerned with how much money the, particularly the American government, but also the European government is putting into this water recycling technology uh, because I think it's a false solution and it's leading to a situation where we don't want to protect public water or, or, or water sources because there's so much money to be made from dirty water. Uh, corporations also move massively water from pipelines, from watersheds and aquifers to sell it to big cities and industries. And corporations now buying, storing and selling water on the open market like running shoes. Most importantly, corporations now want governments to deregulate the water sector and the market to set water policy and every day they get closer to this goal. Scenario three deepens the crisis of scenarios one and two. Imagine a world in 20 years in which no substantive progress has been made to provide basic water services in the developing world, uh, absolutely where we're going in terms of the UN Millennium Goals, which are, have failed miserably, or to create laws to protect source water and force industry and industrial agriculture production or to stop polluting dirty water systems, or to curb the mass movement of water by pipeline, tanker, and other diversions, which are creating huge new swaths of desert. Here's what it's going to look like, I can tell you. Desalination plants will ring the world's oceans, many of them run by nuclear power. Corporate-controlled nanotechnology will clean up sewage water and sell it to private utilities, who will sell it back to us at a huge profit. The rich will drink only bottled water found in the few remote parts of the world left or sucked from the clouds by corporate-controlled machines while the poor die in increasing numbers. This is not science fiction. This is where the world is headed unless we change course, a moral and ecological imperative. The corporate control of water is dangerous, profoundly dangerous in, in, in at least three ways. The first is there is now a built-in disincentive not to maintain or introduce laws to protect water. There is simply huge amounts of money now to be made in uh, recycling dirty water. The largest uh, water corporations in the world are no longer the big bottling companies. They're no longer the big utility companies like Suez and, and Veolia. They're companies like General Electric, Procter & Gamble, and Dow Chemical all into the water recycling business. In fact, telling you that toilet-to-tap recycling is good for you, and if it's just deregulated, they can get on with business. The second is that only the rich will be able to have access to water because no transnational corporation can be competitive and successful uh, and deliver social services at the same time. It's not their mandate. Furthermore, of course, nature will have to fend for itself in a world where corporations control water, and nature will be further plundered for the remaining pockets of blue gold because no successful competitive transnational corporation can be in business to conserve the very product um, that it is peddling. Basically, what we need to do is that we are trying to bring these various threads together and say that no one crisis is the only crisis and that each intertwines with the other and that together we have to find the answers. On the water front, on the water issue, we are calling for what I call a blue covenant, which really is a covenant of three parts. We need a water conservation covenant, a covenant between people and the earth, when we have to recognize the rights of the earth and the rights of other species to water and that we are just a species like others and that we have to pledge to protect this. 
We have to have a water justice covenant. Those of us living and working in the global north must pledge to work in solidarity with people in the global south for water justice so that there is water for all. The the call for water for all needs to become a reality, uh, and that means local control of water. And We need to work in solidarity with the global south toward that. And the third is a water democracy covenant where we recognize that water is a fundamental right, it's a fundamental human right, and therefore governments are obliged to provide this water as a public service to their people. Um, and and uh, corporations must abandon this field, and we absolutely have to take control back. This, then, is our task, nothing less than reclaiming water as the commons for the earth and all people that must be wisely and sustainably shared and managed if we are to survive. This will not happen unless we are prepared to reject the basic tenets of market-based globalization, the current imperatives of competition, unlimited growth, and private ownership of everything must be replaced by the imperatives of cooperation, sustainability, and public stewardship. Bolivia's President Evo Morales says, and I think this is very, very, very wise, and I wish we would have a prime minister in my country who would think like this, our goals need to be to forge a real integration to live well. We say live well because we do not aspire to live better than others. We do not believe in the line of progress and unlimited development at the cost of others and nature. Live well is to think not only in terms of income per capita, but cultural identity, community, harmony between ourselves and with Mother Earth. So I end by saying that water could be our teacher Water could be nature's gift to humanity uh, in order to teach us how to live in harmony with the earth and peace with one another, as opposed to becoming the, the area of conflict, which I, I deeply fear is coming. In Africa, they say, we do not go to water ponds merely to capture water, but because friends and dreams are there to meet us. Thank you. That was Maud Barlow, recorded in September 2007 at the International Forum on Globalization Teach-In in Washington, D.C. Next, Daphne Weisham will speak on the ominous role of the World Bank in the global game of carbon trading. She's introduced by her fellow member at the Institute for Policy Studies, John Cavana. Daphne Weisham, who is a fellow, a member of our board. She's also the founder and co-director with Nadia Martinez of our Sustainable Energy and Economy Network uh, at IPS, and she is the founder and co-host of EarthBeat Radio. The Sustainable Energy and Economy Network did the path-breaking work that drew the attention to the disproportionate share of greenhouse gas emissions coming from the international financial institutions, particularly the World Bank. Please welcome Daphne Weisham. What I want people to think about is who is going to handle the money. Uh, First principles of investigative reporting that I was taught, follow the money. And that's what we've been trying to do for about 10 years at the Institute for Policy Studies at the Sustainable Energy and Economy Network. And what we found 
is um, some pretty frightening stuff. Um, right now, for example, Halliburton is the number one energy client of the World Bank. Uh, Enron rose to global fame and fortune thanks to the World Bank. Uh, in fact, they're still alive and well and um, got a loan from the IDB recently. We all think that Enron collapsed. They've actually got um, very strong international presence. You know, we're talking about $300 billion a year by 2025. We're talking about 40 to $50 billion a year in terms of international adaptation. My question is, who's going to handle the money? And unfortunately, if we leave things alone as they are going right now, um, we are in trouble because it will probably be the World Bank. They're actually gaining power and specifically gaining power in the climate arena. I was in India recently. Um, we visited the, the coal mining region, and uh, open-pit coal mines are taking over um, just beautiful forested lands, turning them into just a barren wasteland. And where's this coal going? A lot of it's going to aluminum smelters. Where are these aluminum smelters coming from? They're coming from our country, Alcoa, Alucan, Suisse, because it's one of the cheapest sources of energy on the planet, and everybody knows that aluminum, they need 24 hours energy supply. This was actually set in motion by World Bank Finance. A lot of the uh, deregulation of the power sector in ERISA actually accelerated the energy-intensive industry's uh, migration to the region. And to make matters worse, they're taking the fly ash that is generated after you burn the coal, and they're turning the fly ash into carbon credits. You take fly ash, you add a little bit of water and some other sand and other materials, you let it dry in the sun, and you have a brick. Okay. Now, if you make bricks from regular sources like clay, you actually have to fire them in a kiln. So by the World Bank's logic, all of the greenhouse gas emissions that would be emitted if you fired them in a kiln you can now uh, sell on the open market to turn the fly ash into cinder blocks. Um, we, we visited the, 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 one of the places. We just happened to be driving by a road where we saw them making these fly ash bricks. And, of course, the workers were completely unprotected. There's all kinds of heavy metals and radioactive materials in the fly ash. Now, what's wrong with this picture? There's, a, there's quite a few things that are wrong with this picture. First of all, of course, is that our development dollars – are financing fossil fuels in the global south. In fact, it's actually increasing. They're growing. They're not shrinking their investment in fossil fuels, the World Bank. Okay, so that's problem number one. The, the, problem number two is that they're not counting the greenhouse gas emissions in these investments. So we're actually seeing a bank that is not counting all the emissions that will result from the Chad Cameroon pipeline and the Baku Chehan pipeline and the coal-fired power plants that they help to finance, but they're doing a very good job of calculating all those carbon credits. So it's bad math. It's like looking at your savings account and pretending that your checking account doesn't exist, even though you're writing checks left and right. That's problem number two. So problem number three with this picture that I just painted of these uh, villagers living next to the aluminum smelters and being thrown off their land for the coal mines and so on is that it's pushing an export-oriented development model. In fact, many of the people in these villages don't even have electricity. They're living right next to the, to the coal mines and the aluminum smelters that are going 24 hours a day, and they have no electricity. 
they're getting all of the all of the uh, energy intensive uh, externalized costs, but none of the benefits. Um, the other problem with this is the Kyoto Protocol actually doesn't rent, regulate this form of energy intent, intensive industrial migration to countries like India. And as Victor stated, even if it did, the WTO could overrule it. Now, I'm, I'm going through a list of problems. I'm, I've got about seven here, and then I'm going to talk about what I think are some solutions to deal with these, because I, I do think there are, are ways of solving this problem. Another is that, um, uh, as other speakers have talked about, carbon trading is right now, maybe in some distant future, it will start to finance lots of clean energy. But right now, last I checked, I think wind energy was getting 6%. Uh, large hydro was getting something like 12 or 15 percent of the financing under um, the CDM, the Clean Development Mechanism. Most of the credits were going to HFC um, destruction. Now, HFCs are very potent global warming gases. Yes, we want them destroyed, but we're actually creating perverse incentives to create more of them by creating a market for their destruction. And that's the fear, and that's actually what was, I don't know if you all caught that article in the New York Times a while ago that, that looked at this particular issue, is that we're, we may be unwittingly creating perverse incentives, just like the fly ash. Instead of externalizing the cost of that fly ash on that coal-fired power producer, you're turning it into an asset to sell on the international market. You're basically telling the coal-fired power producer, Make even more money burning coal, please, and here's, here's your carbon credit to do it. And finally, I want to say that the World Bank is being given a very dangerous leadership role on climate change and on carbon trading. Uh, and there are all kinds of conflicts of, of interest inherent in, in this role, which radicals from the U.S. Treasury pointed out back in 1997. Yes, the U.S. Treasury said this is a serious conflict of interest. The World Bank cannot simultaneously be one of the largest financiers of fossil fuels, public financiers, and at the same time engage in carbon trading. It's a clear conflict of interest. It encourages you to lower your baseline for energy efficiency guidelines, which of course is what happened. And Treasury said if you just increased your energy efficiency standards, that alone would do more than any carbon trade because the World Bank sets the standards for all the development banks. It's not just one bank. It sets its standard for the IDB, the EBRD, the ADB, all of these big development banks and ex export credit agencies and over 90% of the private finance that looks to the equator principal banks. The equator principals have signed on to these World Bank guidelines and they, and they call themselves green and of course, the guidelines that the World Bank has uh, developed has, has no carbon accounting for their fossil fuel investments and so on. So what we have is basically, um, unfortunately, in the, in the case of the World Bank, we've got, um, we're empowering the very institutions that have a very bad track record in terms of, of, of following through on, on the commitments that they have claimed to be making ever since the 1992 Earth Summit where they were given a, a critical role in trying to marshal the international finance to deal with the climate crisis. We, um, we have a report that I encourage you all to read, and I'm just going to give you a, a nutshell summary of it. But basically what we have with the Glen Eagles Clean Energy Investment Framework, which for those of you who don't know what that was, that happened in 2005. 
Bush was trying to make nice to Tony Blair, and he said, okay, okay, we'll, we'll go along with this clean energy investment framework. We'll give the World Bank the authority to develop an entire investment framework for the entire world, not just the developing countries, on what we should do around climate change. Well, this was when Wolfowitz was the president, and, of course, he began to delete all, all, all references to the words climate change from this document, which, thankfully, that got out in the press. What didn't get out in the press is at least, I mean, we tried, but everybody was uh, not particularly interested, was that this document in its first draft stages began at 450 parts per million and went up to 1,000 parts per million CO2 equivalent. Okay, so we've been hearing about, you know, how we got to keep below 450 and the world's going to, you know, go into serious meltdown after that. They, be they didn't even consider anything below 450. That's where they started, okay? So they're on a business-as-usual trajectory, and business-as-usual on steroids is what I would call it. Um, and they basically uh, laid out an agenda that includes nukes, um, so-called clean coal, lots of large hydro, lots of carbon trading, and very little in the way of renewable energy. Now, this, this coming at a time when... China just said they want to spend $100 billion on, on renewable energy. China single-handedly is, is announced that a few days ago. Now, of course, a lot of it's large hydro and biofuels, but still, $100 billion for clean energy is, is not chump change coming out of one country. And yet the World Bank can't marshal, you know, a billion dollars for clean energy, but they've got all kinds of plans for pushing this dirty stuff. Well, okay, so those are all the problems. That's, that's the way I see the World Bank consolidating its power. It's, it's becoming a big carbon trader. Uh, it's now got the prototype carbon fund, the biocarbon fund, the community development carbon fund. They're trying to get in uh, to push uh, avoided deforestation as a big uh, uh, part of the Kyoto Protocol. They are getting ahead of the UN process and saying that they're learning by doing and, and essentially always getting their way. Whatever they propose ends up happening. Solutions. Here we go. Um, I, I, I loved uh, Wolfgang Sachs' um, statement that we've got to start with ecological disarmament. So I'm going to use that from now on. Um, that's got to be our first. In other words, live within our ecological limits domestically. Clearly, we've got to get our development dollars out of fossil fuels. Full stop. No brainer. That's got to stop. And we've got some legislation moving on Capitol Hill. The Hinchy bill is working on trying to end what the, what's been called oil aid. But we need to do the same for coal. We need to count greenhouse gas emissions accurately. And one of the big ideas that I'm trying to push is this idea of a carbon debit mechanism. If you have carbon credits... Okay, then let's car charge a carbon debit to the same institutions that are claiming carbon credits. So for the Chad Cameron pipeline, all that oil flowing through the pipeline, the World Bank gets to count as a debit before it counts any credits and, and profits off of the credits. Right now they're making, they won't tell us, but they're making somewhere between 5 and 10% on all of these transactions. So that $1 billion project of uh, HFC destruction in China, what does that work out to? $100 million from one, one project. We need to, uh, and this is probably going to be controversial, but I think we need to, to, to get at the export-oriented model of development that we all agree is very energy-intensive and to get at this migration of energy-intensive industries to countries like India. We need some sort of a green fee at the border 
with the revenue reinvested in developing countries, in clean energy and sustainable land use, in, 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 and match that with some sort of a carbon tax domestically so that we could at least be immune to a WTO challenge until we get them um, uh, straightened out. We need to create an international renewable energy agency, reject the Glen Eagles framework, create a clean energy bank that is completely independent of the World Bank, has nothing to do with the World Bank, uh, with revenue coming from a variety of sources that have been suggested, including possibly a Tobin tax. You know, I think we can get to a place where we can globalize a carbon and nuclear-free future. Arjun Makajani, he talked about how to do it domestically uh, by 2050, and I'm trying to uh, get him to think internationally. Um, so I'll leave it at that, and thank you for your attention. That was Daphne Weisham, member of the Institute for Policy Studies. She spoke at the September 2007 teach-in on the Global Triple Crisis, organized by the International Forum on Globalization. These and other panel talks of the three-day teach-in are posted on the IFG website at www.ifg.org. You can also find a free download or a CD of the 60-minute combination of the talks by Vandana Shiva, Maud Barlow, and Daphne Weisham on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. You can place your order on the website or call toll-free anytime at 877-TUC-TAPE. This toll-free phone number, 877-TUC-TAPE, translates into 1-877-882-8273. TUC Radio is free to all radio stations. Your order or your donation is our only support and is essential in keeping TUC Radio on the air. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening. Give us a call. <laughs>